The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8, which you heard read this morning. We're just going to look at the first two verses. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. It's probably one of the most important Scripture you'll ever hear or learn about because it speaks not only about justification. I should have three of you stand up and tell us what justification is, but I won't. Justification means that God declared you to be righteous simply based upon what Jesus Christ has done in your place. It's connected to 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says, God the Father made him the Son who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's justification. God imputes the righteousness of Jesus Christ to us when we put our faith in him. And we become righteous in his eyes. We stand before him uh, as though we had gone through a trial and we were declared to be absolutely righteous in the eyes of God. And so let me read to you, first of all, these first two verses. If you'll turn it to Romans chapter 8. This is a passage you should mark with your marking pen if you have one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's, that's kind of a negative way of saying he's talking about justification, being declared righteous. There's no condemnation, which means there's no judgment against us. Isn't that amazing? That You stand before a God who says, you are absolutely righteous in my eyes. Now, you would think he would wait and watch your life a little bit, wouldn't you think? It'd be like, you know, in, uh, if you were before a judge and you were going to go to trial for a capital murder and, um, and you could either be put to death or live, and the judge says to you, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to declare you to be innocent, and I want you now to go and live in light of that truth. That's what God has done for us. He has declared us to be absolutely righteous in his eyes. Now, most of us don't know anybody on practical terms that we would say, That is an absolutely righteous person. But this is what God says about us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. This is the primary doctrine of the Reformation. They became aware of the fact that the Bible teaches that God has declared to be righteous all those who have rested their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he goes on in verse 2, and notice the way these two verses are put together. He says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. So the first, the very first statement is about your justification, that you are absolutely righteous. But the second statement in verse 2 is about your sanctification. You are being made holy. God is changing who you are on the inside. He's changing who you are as you walk with him. This is what happens with people who walk with Christ. They get changed, transformed. Christ begins to be formed in us. And so those are the two great truths of the the gospel, that God has declared us to be righteous, but now he says, based upon that righteousness, we have the ability to take hold of this law of the spirit of life that was working in Jesus Christ and have it transform us as well. But we'll never be justified because we're sanctified. That's something we really need to be careful about. We're not justified because we're sanctified. We're not justified because we're really good people. I think you're all really good people. But but I know you're really good people, but that's not why you're justified. 
You're justified. You're declared absolutely righteous in the eyes of God because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And everything that you receive from God is based upon your faith. You're trusting him. And because you have trusted him, he has declared you to be righteous. I'd like to show you in this little slide presentation here a key truth that's in this passage. It's, it's all, that's what this passage is really about. It's a key truth, and it's the necessity, the necessary priority. Here's what comes first. What comes first is our pardon by God, and then, because of that, comes the power to be changed. Now, that's strange, because most, a lot of Christians think that they've been declared to be righteous because they have learned how to live. They learned how to, to turn their back on sin and turn their eyes upon God and obey his commandments and so forth. And especially churches that consider themselves to be holiness churches are churches who think that because they've changed their lifestyle, God has been uh, in favor of them and has declared them to be righteous. But that's not what happened. What happened was you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Somewhere you heard the gospel that God was sending his son into the world to die for sinners And if you trusted him, he would declare you to be righteous and he would bring you into his presence. Imagine that if you were on trial for some horrible crime and it was a capital crime, you'd be put to death if you were determined to be guilty. And the judge says to you, okay, we can do this one of two ways. Either I can try you right now and determine whether you're guilty or innocent and make the declaration, or I can declare you to be righteous and I'll have a I'll have a uh, patrol officer live with you to see what you're really like. And in 10 years, we'll bring you before the judge again, and then he will judge you based upon the way you have lived for the last 10 years. Now, can you imagine what that would feel like over those 10 years as you lived waiting to see the judge who was going to declare whether you were innocent or guilty? You see, that's the way a lot of Christians think, that they've got to really prove themselves so that God will be convinced that they are righteous. But what God has done in our case is he has sent his son into the world. And we first have to come to the, to the truth that we have been declared righteous and we are right with God. God has positioned us before him. We now have a relationship with him that's based solely upon the merit of Jesus Christ. Now notice this. Forgiveness for our sins through faith in Christ must precede and empower our battle against sin in our lives. What I'm talking about is, do you ever do this? You know, we got a New Year's coming up. Do you ever do this where you say, you know, I'm going to really turn over a new leaf this year. I'm going to start living differently. I'm going to start doing this and this and this and this. I'm going to start praying every day. I'm going to start living like this. I'm going to start taking care of people. I'm going to become a sponsor of children in Uganda. I'm going to do something good. And then the time comes and goes, and somebody reminds you, you know, I thought you were going to do this and this and this and this but you didn't. Well, the wonderful thing is that you must come to the the place where you realize that you've been forgiven of sin by the living God because of your faith in Christ if you're going to ever overcome the domination of sin in your life. One of the things that happens in this past, in the, the previous chapter of Romans, is that Paul is talking about how difficult it is to live without sin in this fallen world. And he talks about himself. Now, Paul was a very righteous man, and yet Paul was sure that he did not deserve the forgiveness that God had given him, that it was a gift from God, a gift of grace that he had received 
by putting his faith in Jesus Christ. And so what Paul did is he came to understand that he was right before God because of what Christ had accomplished. And therefore, the fact that he wanted to be free from these sins in his life would not be based upon his effort, but be based upon the person of Jesus Christ. I'd like to say to you parents that are worried about your children, I want you to know who sanctifies your child. It's not you. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might think, well, wow, I think I, I, I have more concern than he does. I mean, I really want my child to come to a place of following Christ. Does Christ care as much as you do? Far more than you do, right? And so you can actually trust him. You don't have to live in a nervous state all the time. I heard this past week a story about a family who was having trouble with their kids and what the, what the father decided to do was really radical because he was trying to convince them that they needed to do the right thing. Well, I want you to know that the one who influences them for righteousness is not you. Well, it is you too with, because you are, you are affected by Christ, but it's Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that you can trust. He's the one that works in the hearts of people. And so uh, forgiveness of our sins is something that we have to come to grips with. We have to understand it and believe it. How many of you can quote 1 John 1.9? You don't have to quote it, but just raise your hand. Do you know how to quote 1 John 1.9? That's kind of our life verse, isn't it? If we confess our sins, he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, we know that, we, that there is forgiveness in Christ in the most practical kind of way even in our daily lives today as believers. We have a savior in the third heaven who can forgive us. And he says, what we must do is confess our sins. Well, what's that? What are we doing when we confess our sins? Who would you confess your sin to? Would it be, would it be better for us to have somebody, a priest to, to stand in a booth and tell you, and you could come to him and confess your sin to him and then he could forgive you? Or can we trust the Lord Jesus Christ? Can we trust him enough to be honest with him? Can I actually tell him the truth about my heart and my life? The Apostle Paul said, uh, you know, I was doing pretty good until I ran into that commandment that said, thou shall not covet. And covet just means to lust or to want something so bad you're grasping for it. And uh, he said, once I read that commandment, I started coveting everything. Everything I saw, I wanted. Why? Because of our hearts. It's because of this law of the sin, of de- sin and death that he talks about here in this passage. It's the law of sin and death. Do you know the difference between the, a, the law of gravity and the law of California? What's the difference? Well, the difference is that the law of gravity is a force, isn't it? It's a, it's, we call it a law of gravity. What it is, it's a force in action. If you come out to my house, I, we've got a barn that's about... 15 feet high, and you go up on the top of that barn, you will feel the law of gravity if you step off the roof. And you'll feel more than that as you hit the ground. See, the law of gravity is a force. It's something that's in, it's happening all the time. The law of sin and death is something inside of you. I hate to tell you that. The law of sin and death is something that's inside of us. Us, all of us, we have the law of sin and death in us. And this is why he's saying so much in this chapter about how we are to live. 
the first thing we have to do is to realize, you know, the, the, what I want God to deal with in my life is something that he has already forgiven me for. You know, that God has forgiven you for things, and, and yet you go back over and over and over again. Well, what do we need to do? Well, first of all, we need to be convinced that our forgiveness has been secured by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he's talking about here when he says, for there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What in the world is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus? Have you ever wondered that when you read that passage? That the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death? The law of sin and death is a power that's working, and so is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It was interesting, and one of the last things Jesus said to his disciples after they had been with him for many years, they had watched him very closely. And he says to them, it's good for you that I go away, because if I don't go away, the helper will not come. And then he went on to say, the spirit has been with you, but he shall be in you. Well, in what way was the Spirit with them? How was the Spirit with these people? Well, he was with them as they watched him at work in Christ's life. As the Spirit of God worked in the life of Jesus, they saw the the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Jesus did all kinds of things in the power of the Spirit, we are told. For example, he was anointed by the Spirit without measure. We are told in John chapter 3, verse 34. He was vindicated before men by the Spirit, 1 Timothy 3.16. He was empowered by the Spirit to do miracles. He was empowered to rejoice in the worst of circumstances. He was empowered to preach the gospel when it was a difficult thing to do. And he was empowered to be raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God. How in the world did Jesus get out of the tomb and into the presence of God by the power of the Spirit. This is the law of the Spirit of life. It is at work. And the parallel you could use is the, the, the law of gravity. You know that if you went up on this roof and you stepped off the roof, you would feel the, 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 the law of gravity. And you would have to submit to it. You could flap your arms all you want. But you would submit to the law of gravity. And the law of the spirit of life is the law of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is able to work in our lives as he did in Jesus. And this is why he told them, he has been with you. You have seen him at work in my life. His very life was a testimony to the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you're in Christ, the spirit of life is working in you. You hear that? If you're in Christ, the law of the spirit of life is working in you. The Holy Spirit is at work in you. In Romans chapter, verse, chapter 8, verse 9 says uh, that you're not, you're, you are in the Spirit. In fact, let me read it to you, verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, because he had just said those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But he says you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. In other words, if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of Christ, the same Holy Spirit that empowered him during his life, even out of the tomb into the third heaven. That's the kind of power that the Spirit has to work in our lives. 
And so we live in this law of the spirit. But in order for us to, and when I say be free from sin, I don't want to get explicit with this, but I am sure that you're like me, that you have certain areas in your life you really want God to work in your life to set you free from a pattern in your life in which you easily you succumb to temptation to sin. For example, I am, I am told that, that what I ought to do is I ought to speak for Christ in all of my life, in all the circumstances that he brings me. When I have an opportunity to speak to somebody about, about Christ, I am called to do that. And if I don't do it, I am withholding myself from the will of God. Sometimes we get really worked up about the fact that there are things that God says about himself that don't fit into our pattern of understanding who God is. They seem to contradict. We've talked a lot about this at different places, different times, so this, this whole doctrine of election. Sometimes that disturbs us because it doesn't seem like that's consistent with our other thoughts about God. You mean God is the one who is in charge? Is God sovereign? Does he actually have all authority in heaven and upon earth? He says he does. And so there are things that he does that we feel aren't quite in tune with the way that we have kind of pictured God in our mind. Well, I I just want to say, you don't have to worry about that. It's okay. Because God isn't bothered by you disagreeing with him. Did you know that? It doesn't upset him if you disagree with him. In fact, you can talk to him about it. You'll feel a little silly. In fact, probably what will happen is you'll say, you know, I really don't know what I'm talking about. And I trust you. I was listening to a guy talk about his experience in a church that he planted with another. Another man had planted a church in the same building, but it was big enough they planted two churches. Well, this guy, he had planted a church, and they were all young people. They were young, and they were energetic, and, they, and he assumed that his church would grow like crazy, and this other church that planted had a bunch of blue-haired ladies. And I, I never, had never heard that expression. I think he meant old ladies. And he said, uh, so we, we went along for a few years. We grew like crazy. But finally, I decided that Lord, the Lord wanted to do something different in my life. So I left that church and went to work in a seminary, Midwestern Seminary. But when he went to their fifth anniversary, the, the church that he used to be neighbors with and the man that he knew so well had grown like crazy. And God had been using them in that community. And many people had come to faith in Christ. And he said, I was just blown away because there were, there were not just uh, blue-haired ladies there. There were some young people there as well. Things had, had grown and blossomed. And I didn't expect it to. And he says, this was their mantra. The pastor said, I'm an idiot and I don't know what I'm doing. But you can come join me if you want to. <laughs> What an appeal, huh? He said, I really don't know what I'm doing. I don't know why God is bringing growth to this, to this assembly, but he has. He has favored us with his blessing upon us. Well, let me tell you, we serve a God who knows what he's doing. And in comparison, we don't. That's just a fact. We just don't. But we have a God who knows exactly what he's doing and exactly what he's planning and exactly what he's going to accomplish. And so we can rest our faith in him completely. We can trust him. 
And we can trust him to use all kinds of people and all kinds of circumstances because that's his will and his purpose. He has a purpose in working in people's lives. The fact that he chose you before the foundation of the world, which is what the Bible says, it could be wrong, I suppose, uh, according to a lot of people who talk to me, that just can't be true. That God set his love on you in eternity past, that God began to love you before you even were thinking about him, isn't that odd? That is odd, isn't it? That's God. That's the God that we serve. And sometimes we think we have him figured out, but the fact is we don't have him figured out. Now, he has us figured out, and his feelings aren't hurt because there's things about him that we don't understand. His feelings aren't hurt when we hear what he says about himself, what he reveals about himself, and yet we say, how can that possibly be? How can it possibly be that that's how he functions? He's God, and you are not, right? And so it's God that we have to trust. Now, maybe he put it in the Bible just as a joke. You know, maybe he had Paul write Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Maybe he just put that in there to kind of rattle your cage a little bit. I don't think so. But it's okay with me if you're troubled by it and it's it's keeping you up at night. Actually, that's good. You can give me a call. Because I'm usually up at night too. But not about that. And uh, I'm glad to have a conversation with you. But let me tell you, it's, you, you're safe in trusting him, even when you don't understand him. It's okay to say, you know what? I don't get it. I just don't get it. It doesn't seem like that could possibly be true because of this and this and this and this. But you did say it. And so I'm just going to trust you. I'm just going to trust you. And what you, just, what you find out, Jonathan Edwards said that he hated the doctrine of election. It really made him angry. And he said, then he embraced it by faith. And he said, now is the doctrine that I love the most, that God chose me. Because I, I knew that there would, I, have, I am absolutely sure there's no other way I would have ever come to trust in the living God, except he would reach out to me and not wait for me to reach out to him. Amazing. Well, he has, what he has done for you, he has justified you. And now that he has justified you, which means that by your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been declared to be righteous in his eyes. Absolutely righteous. And since he has done this, now what he wants you to do is to believe that. And when you appeal to him for his help in overcoming sin in your life, do it by faith that he has already forgiven you. He has forgiven you of your sins. So that now you can experience the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, because you're in Christ Jesus. You did know that, didn't you? That the Bible says that when you believed on Christ, that you came to be in Christ Jesus, and Christ Jesus came to be in you. The Bible says that 150 times. You're in Christ, and Christ is in you. And so you can trust him. And you can depend upon the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, because the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is the law. It is the, it is the force. It's the power 
to transform you into what Christ wants you to become. You know, if, when you watch those pictures and you see people in this kind of condition, for us, we live in such um, blessing. We live in incredible places and times, and, and we have so much. We are blessed by so much, and we see people in great poverty. And sometimes we're tempted to think, man, I sure wouldn't want to be around those people. I wouldn't want to be in that home. I wouldn't want to be in that situation. And yet God has demonstrated his love for these people. He has sent so many people with the gospel to them so that they would hear the truth that God loves you. God cares for you. God sent his son into the world to save you and bring you into the family. And so they're, they're people that are blessed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why these people live by faith. They don't live by faith because they're so sure, so sure of their own ability. They live by faith in the God of the universe who has set his love on them. How in the world did the gospel get to the people there in Uganda? I remember Jack Miller was, uh, he has a mission called World Harvest Mission now. He was a pastor in Philadelphia. He taught at Westminster Seminary kind of a plain fellow, but he was, he was enamored with the gospel. He got, he, got, he got taken in by the gospel. It took him prisoner. And he's the guy who used to always say, cheer up, you're a lot worse than you think. But God's love for you is greater than you could ever imagine. He went to Uganda, and he started preaching the gospel. And God began to save people in the most unusual ways. And when he describes the effects of people coming to faith in Christ, the effects of them starting to live under the rule of the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, there are astonishing stories about their lives being changed. Without them becoming rich, without them coming to have an American-style home, without them acquiring beautiful clothes, they were changed by the gospel. And they began to love people. And they began to want to tell other people about the truth of this gospel and the truth of the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Now, when you look at those two verses, we need to be clear in our own mind that the difference between these two verses, if you notice, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a statement of your justification. I hope you don't mind that big word. That's just a real common word in the Bible. It just means that God declared you to be righteous if you put faith in Christ. Why? Because you put faith in Christ. And that's how he gives to his people, is by faith. And so when you put your trust in Christ, he blessed your life, and now there's no condemnation. Do you realize what that means, no condemnation? It means you're never judged by God to be full of sin. God has declared you to be righteous. He's declared you to be one of his own. He has wiped away your guilt. He's wiped away all the punishment that you deserved. He has put all that aside, and he has brought you into his very presence. And he did that simply because you put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's justification. But in the next verse, this is sanctification. I want to teach you those two big words today. In verse 2, he says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. 
The law of sin and death is basically the power of indwelling sin. We used to call it a sin nature. The Bible never uses that term. It doesn't say you have a sin nature and a righteous nature. It says that you're a sinner who's been saved by grace. And God has declared you to be righteous simply because you believed on Christ. But now that you have believed on Christ, he's talking to them about how their lives can be changed. Their lives can be changed so they can serve God and find the deep, profound happiness of living for God. How could he possibly do that? If he declared you righteous simply because of Christ, how could he ever get you, how could he ever change you into a different person? Well, he does it through that same work. But here's what we have to keep in mind, is our justification is never based on our sanctification. Sanctification is the work of God changing you into a person that looks and acts and lives like Christ. You become more and more like Christ. He sets you apart for himself and you become more like Christ. That's the work of God in the life of the believer. He is changing you. And it is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that has the power to do that. The key truth here is a necessary priority. That is pardon before power. You know, I want the power to overcome sin. I want the power to live righteously before God. I want to please God. I want to praise God. I want my life to redound to his glory, don't you? And sometimes our lives, those things in our life that constantly draw us away, maybe we fall into the same pit over and over and over again. And we think, God, why won't you deliver me from this? Well, here's what you have to do first, is you have to realize that you have been forgiven. So when you confess your sin, I confess my sin this way. I would, I would go into the presence of God, and I would spend at least 30 minutes telling him what a no-good piece of junk I was, and that I had failed him again. And I felt like I needed to let him know that I knew how bad I was. In fact, I'm worse than you could even know, God. And then I would pray and ask him if he would forgive me. Then I started reading the Bible. And the Bible says that Christ has done all that's necessary for me to receive forgiveness. I just have to receive it by faith. I just have to come to him with open hands and say, Father, I have nothing, no way to earn this from you. All I can do is receive it as a gift. And I confess my sin to you, and I thank you for your forgiveness. He's not really interested in you telling him what a jerk you are. He already knows it. He already knows how bad off we are. He already knows how weak we are and how prone to sin we are. But what he has done for us is that he has sent his son into the world. And under the power of the spirit, he accomplished the work of God in bringing salvation to people just like you and me. Who don't deserve it and could never earn it. All they could do is to hear and understand and receive it by faith. That's all God wants you to do. And I would say this, until you find out something different, and until you find, if you, when you run into things in the Bible that, that, that God declares about himself, and you go, uh, I had a woman tell me one time that I, when I came to see that the Bible said so much about, about God's 
sovereignty and how he could, he knew the future. He is omniscient. He knows the past, the present, and the future. He knows all things. I remember a, a professor telling us that uh, in seminary that God never learns anything because he already knows everything. And I thought, that's really weird. But it's true. It's what the Bible says. God knows what you're going to do tomorrow. He knows what you're going to do next week. He knows the truth about you. But he still loves you. Isn't that astounding? You know, I'm sure we're used to telling people, you know, if somebody treated me like that, like you're being treated, I would hit the road. I'd never come back. What does God do? He sets his love upon you. He loves you. And he shows you affection and love through Christ Jesus. And what he wants you to do is when you hear things about him that upset you a little bit, then say, Father, I'm sorry for being upset. I just don't, I can't put these things together. You say this about yourself, and then you say this about yourself, and I can't see how those two things fit together. But you know what? I'm willing to postpone judgment until I know everything. You know how soon that's going to be, right? When you know everything. When you finally come to the place where you know all things, and so you know whether this is true or not. Because isn't that the problem? I run into stuff in the Bible, and I say, how can that be true? You know, for example, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, it says, God desires all people to be saved. Well, how can that be? True that he chose you before the foundation of the world. Why doesn't he just choose everybody that he wants to be saved? We have a friend. I have a friend down in uh, Me Too, Colombia. He's a missionary. Wonderful guy. I've known him for years. But he has become a universalist, which means he believes everybody will be saved. Everybody will be saved. I don't agree with him because the Bible has some very explicit statements about those who refuse to believe on Christ. But he believes that somehow God is going to bring them, when he quotes things like, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so he assumes that every single person will be saved. I think he's wrong. I hope he's right, but I think he's wrong. Because there are people who will not bow the knee to Christ. But they will bow the knee when they see him in his glory. They will submit to his authority when they see him in his glory. But then it's going to be too late, according to Romans chapter 9. Because he's going to come back to save you, to bring you into the presence of God. And there are going to be people who've never come to the place where they have put their faith in Christ. They've never rested on the Holy Spirit's power to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if you're here and you're not a believer and you don't even know why, let me tell you what it is. The Holy Spirit is the only person and force and power in existence that could convince you of the truth of who Christ is. He's the only one. And if you resist him and resist him and resist him, if you sin against the Holy Spirit, what did, God, what did Jesus say? He says, if you, re, if you refuse to submit to the Holy Spirit's convincing you of the truth of who Christ is and what Christ has done, then you've sealed your doom. Now, I don't know how that stuff fits together. I pray for people that I think under normal circumstances, would never, ever, ever turn to Christ. 
But I think God is powerful enough to draw the most unlikely person in all the world into his presence and bow the knee and put their faith in him. And so we pray and we ask and we remind him of what he says in scripture. I had um, two men, they're now men, they were kids then when we first met, but these two guys that I witnessed to over and over and over again, and neither one of them would, would submit to the truth of the gospel. Neither one of them would put their faith in Christ. And so I kept praying for about 25 years. Both of them have come to faith in Christ. Had nothing to do with me, had everything to do with the Holy Spirit. And he worked in their life. And all I could do when I prayed was to pray that the Spirit of God would open their eyes and draw them to Christ. If you ever see Christ, if you ever see him with the eyes of your understanding, the eyes of heart, you will be drawn to him. He's a glorious savior. And he is a loving, kind, blessed savior. And so what we pray for, people, is that the spirit of God would open their eyes and let them see the truth of who Christ is. So that when they hear him being proclaimed, they would be drawn to him. And they would be compelled to be drawn to him. And so what Paul is talking about is we've been justified by our faith in Christ and the same spirit that brought Christ into this world to die for our sins is the Holy Spirit that now resides in you as a believer. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, the spirit lives in you and he is able to motivate and move you and open your eyes and open your heart and open yourself to a life according to the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. I wanted to, I wanted to just show you the, that necessary truth that forgiveness for our sins through faith in Christ must precede us being empowered and, and actually experience victory in this battle against sin. I'm assuming that you all face the same thing I do. I face the battle with sin. There are certain things that so easily appeal to me and it's so easy to give in to the temptation, as Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And then he answered himself. Sometimes we don't notice that, but he answered himself. And he said, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with my mind, I serve the law of the spirit. In other words, I know the truth, but with my flesh, that is that area of my life that has that sin has inroads into, I serve the law of sin and death. And so what God wants to do in our lives is he wants to not only justify us, which he's already done by faith in Christ, but now he wants you to experience the second part of this. Notice that in verse one, a divine declaration, God declares that you're righteous. But in verse two, there's human transformation. Now, maybe you think, well, I've been saved for 22 years. I don't need to be changed anymore. Well, let me talk to your wife or your husband. And I'll guarantee you that you need to be changed. And this is what God wants to do. So he talks of justification in verse 1. And he talks about sanctification, us being changed into the likeness of Christ in verse 2. But you can't get them out of order. If you get them out of order, you'll never experience it. 
If you think that you've got to clean up your act and get your life together so you're acceptable to God, you're never going to come to God. Christ is the one who has provided a way that real sinners, you know what a real sinner is? A real sinner is somebody who has actually sinned against God. They have lived a life of disobedience to the commands of God. The commands of God simply incite them to not do them. And if you don't, if you don't know what that means, just read the New Testament, read the life of Jesus. And you see when Jesus Christ is living his life in this fallen world, and the Pharisees are watching him do what he does, and he shows the character of the Son of God, it makes them so irate. They get so angry because Jesus is living out a life of what we would call sanctification. He is showing his absolute holiness, his, his perfection. And then we're being, we have been made right with God through faith in Christ, that's justification, but in verse 2, it's talking about doing right for God. Aren't you interested in that? I'm really interested in that. I really want to know how to do right in the eyes of God. I want to know how to live in obedience to his commandments. I'm not going to tell you the things that I get tempted about, uh, but i, I got to tell you, i got plenty of them. And uh, I, I want God to work in my life through the law of the spirit of life as he did in the life of Jesus Christ and change me. Now, Jesus wasn't a sinner, but he came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin or as a sin offering, he died for our sins. And so Jesus depended upon the spirit for him to live out his life as a true follower of the living God. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.